Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we're spending some time with guests who know and have experienced the importance of community and have firsthand knowledge of how it can be a lifeline to those who feel disenfranchised and alone. Our first guest is Kristen Schell, a writer and mom from South Texas. Kristen tells us how her longing for community led her to take a bold step in making her front yard a gathering place for meeting new people. My name is Kristen Schell, and I am the author of The Turquoise Table, Finding Community and Connection in Your Own Front Yard. Tony and I have been married for 20 years, and we have four children. We live in Austin, Texas, and when I'm not sitting out front at The Turquoise Table, I'm most likely driving carpool in my minivan. Where I grew up, um, we used to play outside all the time. Our neighbors all had kids our same age, and it was wonderful. We'd spend every day after school and all summer long outside, and the only time we knew when it was time uh, to come home was either it got dark or we were hungry and we knew it was time for supper. My middle school is really when I can trace you know, sort of God's working in my life. I um, went to our regular school um, for middle school, which in Dallas was seventh and eighth grade. But about three or four weeks into um, my seventh grade year, I got beat up in middle school by a bully. I didn't have lunch money and she needed, she needed lunch money. I didn't have it. And I don't, all I know is that I was kind of thrown up against the lockers. I never knew her name. and But what that was, it was um, sort of an inciting moment, if you will. Not so much for me, but for my parents. My mom, her mama bear instincts came out. And so she um, took me out of school. And um, a few weeks later, they realized, well, we need to send Kristen to school. And so they sent me to a neighborhood little private parochial school. And that's really where the story, where I can see it starting. While I was there, part of the daily schedule at the school was to attend um, daily church services. And so I was not of this particular denomination, and so I was not allowed to participate in communion. And so um, in, in my faith growing up, you know, everyone was welcome at the communion table. And so this was something new and different. Um, I have to be honest, it kind of, I mean, it hurt my feelings as a seventh, you know, grade girl who was already feeling sort of excluded and, you know, worried about you know, being included and and sitting at the right table and all of these things. I never imagined that I might not be invited to a table in a place that I held so dearly in my heart as church. At that point in my life, um, I gave up on a God who I believed um, had given up on me. And so for much of my high school years, for all of my high school years and my college years, um, I call those my wanderlust era, where I traveled the world and did a bunch, but I was seeking. And I was, at the time, I didn't know I was looking for my way back to Jesus. But now looking back through those journals and having, you know, the hindsight and, and knowledge that I do now, I know I was desperately looking for a way back into a relationship with with Jesus. And so then in high school, um, I was flunking French class. And so I got a big fat F on my transcript, and that was just a no-no. My parents really didn't know what to do, and so the school called us in and said, you know, maybe we need to get this F off of Kristen's transcript. And so they recommended that I participate in a summer exchange program in France to help do anything because clearly I wasn't, you know, memorizing or studying hard enough. I didn't want to leave. I had, you know, I was the kid that my parents had to come pick me up at camp, you know, because I was so homesick. And so sending me kind of overseas by myself was actually like 
it wasn't exciting to me. Like that was like the worst punishment I could ever think of until I got there. <laughs> and by about the second or third night living with a host family, sitting at their table, still not understanding any of the language, I was so captivated, captivated by the way that this family sat at the table for two or three hours every night um, and just enjoyed each other's conversation and company. And it was it was so different from sort of our busy lifestyles, you know, that I was experiencing back growing up in Dallas. I was in France again another time. This was post-college. And um, I was living with a woman who rented out rooms to students and young women. As a, it was like a boarding house. And she invited me to go to church with her. And I, you know, just said, no, I'm not that. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to go to church. And she was, she persisted in a, in a really loving and truthfully fun way. And so I thought, okay, I will go to church with you. It was where I really heard the Lord speak to me again. And um, I was kneeling in a pew and everything was in Latin and in French. And so I really couldn't understand it. But I heard clearly the Lord just welcome me back. And it was in that moment that I realized he had never left me. Um, I had just taken a little detour <laughs> from him for a while. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. Looking back over you know, journal pages torn and tattered, you reach a point in your life where you kind of go, aha. And, you know, while you're living and pouring your heart out on the pages of these journals, you know, it seems like there's no plan, there's no rhyme or reason. Um, but looking back now, I can see that God clearly, you know, had a plan and a design. I met Tony after both of us had graduated from college. So we met, I was actually um, a little bit older than most of my friends who had already um, gotten married. We met in 1996 and got married New Year's Eve of 97. So we decided that we would make Austin, Texas our home, and we have been here ever since. So when the children were first born, and they were all really little, actually it was when Will, our oldest, um, was born, I joined a Bible study at our church. I just started through scripture and through Bible studies and through conversations, realizing that maybe what you know God was trying to teach me um, was how to belong at the table, um, and not, not just every table, but his table. So my morning devotion time is really the most important time of my day. Um, I, in the middle of my kitchen, I have um, a prayer couch. My husband, Tony, gave, it, gave me a small little couch a um, long time ago, and we call it my prayer couch. And so I start each morning, um, or most mornings, let's be real, but I start most mornings um, on the prayer couch with a cup of coffee and, and work through... Um, you know, scripture and my devotionals. And um, I have had a copy of Jesus Calling. I, I don't remember not having it. Um, and my children have it. In fact, we have several versions of Jesus Calling. My faith was growing. I longed to be in deeper communi community um, with with not only, you know, my, my family and people at church, um, you know, and in, in the community where I was living, but I was struggling because there was no time. Um, you know, I thought all the ways that I thought of opening my life and home to others, um, which is which is the verse the Lord 
put on my heart. It's Romans 12, 13. And in the voice translation, it says, take every opportunity to open your life and home to others. And so I had this deep desire to take Romans 12, 13 to heart, but yet I had four small children and a husband and, you know, life was just seemingly crazy and, and all those opportunities, how were they going to happen? And so I trusted that he would provide some sort of answer. I never in a million years thought that the answer to the prayer would be a turquoise table in my front yard. We were having a backyard barbecue with a friend and I needed a, a simple and easy casual way for people to gather in our backyard. So I ordered a plain old pine picnic table, um, as ordinary as ordinary can be. And when they, when the, when the delivery guys um, delivered it, it was super heavy. They put it in my front yard and left it just right by the street underneath um, one of our trees. And they came to the door and said, ma'am, where do you want this picnic table? And I walked outside. And I saw it right there next to the edge of our lively street underneath the magnolia tree. And it was like right then and there, God had answered my prayers. And so I had this just crazy vision of that table staying in the front yard. And my thought was, what if, what if we were to take all of our everyday sort of ordinary activities that we were already doing? Because remember, you know, we're busy. We don't have time to take on a new program or to create something new. So what if we were doing homework? What if we were having casual meals? And my thought was, is that maybe that was a way to live out Romans 12, 13, to take every opportunity to open our life and home to others. What if that could happen in the most ordinary place of all, our front yard? Then we painted it turquoise because it's my favorite color. There was a side of me that thought a turquoise picnic table in my front yard, like that is, that might be really weird. I went out to the table that very first day and there were some doubts, but there was also just a hope. And I sat down with a journal and a mug of coffee and I sat at that table and I thought, okay, here we go, Lord. And Really, I mean, within just a few minutes, a neighbor who I had never met before walked by. And I, I obviously didn't know her name, um, but within minutes, we were chatting about just everything. And for 30 minutes, we sat outside at the turquoise table. And, you know, now Susan is um, one of my dearest friends. She lives as a crow flies about three or four houses from me, but we had never seen each other at the grocery store or we, our paths had just never crossed. Um, And so from that experience, not only did I meet Susan, but I also that was just a huge encouragement. So after I met Susan, I thought I was encouraged and I was like, okay, I have to try this again. So I brought the kids and I, you know, went out um, and, and started doing homework in the afternoons. And every time we went out there, something would happen. Something, you know, so simple and so small. I mean, but it was such encouragement. And then um, after about three or four, you know, little spontaneous gatherings with just my family out at the table, I thought, well, I'm going to invite some of my neighbor friends over. And so I had a planned coffee. We met for coffee and they immediately, you know, loved the idea. And they loved it because it was, it was something so simple and so doable in all of our, you know, lives. And 
I never anticipated, but a couple of them said, well, can we put front picnic tables in our front yards too? And I was like, sure. You know, it totally took me off guard. Pretty quickly, early on, you know, people started putting turquoise tables in their front yards. And my role shifted. Um, Well, it just became also kind of the encourager. And I remember thinking, really, God, you want me to encourage people to put turquoise picnic tables in their front yards? Like, for real? And clearly he did. (laughs) Church groups or mops groups or people wanted me to come you know, speak to 10, 15 people at a time and just share the story, share the encouragement of how easy it was to begin to build community in your front yard. And what was remarkable about what I was seeing unfolding at that point is that, yes, there was 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 our turquoise table in our front yard. But then as they started, you know, kind of branching out across the United States, there was this second layer of community, you know, of, of people who were really trying and in all, you know, honesty and earnest, you know, to, to build community in a simple way. And I think that's the beauty of this story is that, you know, it's not about the turquoise table. Um, the turquoise table has never been the hero of the story. God's people are the hero of the uh, heroes of the story, but it gives as a tangible tool, a whimsical and delightfully creative, fun way to invite people to come join us in life. So at this point now, tables are kind of popping up all over. I feel like I'm the one that is so blessed by the creativity, the passion, the stories, um, the vulnerability, the honesty of what other people are doing and how they're living as front yard people. Like it overwhelms me most days. I was speaking at a women's Christian writing conference and it became clear at that point, you know, from people telling me, you've got to write a book. We need, you know, advice and how can we set this up? My hope um, is that anyone who picks up the book, The Turquoise Table, comes away um really encouraged and and not just encouraged in the heart, but encouraged to take action in very practical ways. One of the things that we talk about, you know, in the book and, and I encourage people when I meet with them is, well, if you don't have a front yard, where are the natural places that people in your community tend to gather? And I'm astounded by the creativity of how people are adapting the turquoise table movement for their very specific needs. For example, we have tur- there are turquoise tables now on church patios and in school atriums and in hospital areas and in farmers markets, and it 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 just. Um, it really, it, it's amazing to see how creative people can adapt the concept. I've really tried to stay um, grounded um, in scripture and in God's word, um, which is how this whole movement really began, was birthed out of my relationship um, and my conversations and my quiet time with him. And so I think it was, it was just, again, a testimony of God's goodness and his his just love, um, not only, you know, for me, but for everyone. Um, but when I, the day before the book came out, I was reading Jesus always. And it says, do what you can and leave the rest to me. And I just thought, you know, that is what we all 
um, you know, need to, to do. It's just um, do what you can with what you've what we've been given, um, but let God do the rest. And I often say um, when I'm encouraging other people um, to to live as front yard people or to build community where they live, just open up your door, open up your door, take three steps out and let God do the rest. To find out more about Kristen Shell and the Turquoise Table book, and to learn about how you can become a front yard person, visit turquoisetable.com. As we continue our show about building community, our next guests are Rick Russall and Brian Mavis, writers of The Neighboring Church, Getting Better at What Jesus Said Matters Most. We'll hear from Rick and Brian after this brief message. As a special offer to you, the listeners of the Jesus Calling podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Find your favorite Sarah Young titles, including Jesus Calling and Jesus Always, in an audiobook version, and get it for free by trying audible.com. Check out a small sample of the Jesus Calling audiobook featured at the end of this podcast. To download an entire free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling for your full free audiobook. Now, let's return to our next guests, Rick Russaw and Brian Mavis. Our next guests are passionate about the life of the church and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, as commanded in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. They are the authors of The Neighboring Church, Getting Better at What Jesus Said Matters Most. Rick Russaw is the lead pastor of LifeBridge Church, and Brian Mavis is the president of the nonprofit America's Kids Belong. They are committed to teaching believers how to take the great commandment of loving your neighbor, both literally and seriously. I'm uh, Rick Russaw. I'm the lead pastor at LifeBridge Church. been here 25 years. I didn't grow up in the church, um, so I've kind of come at Christianity and church a bit skeptically. And and so here we were, our church was growing, you know, we were in outreaches, list of fastest growing churches in in the West, all those kinds of things. And I was still wondering if we were making any difference. Hi, I'm Brian Mavis. About 10 years ago, uh, I was uh, uh, not even attending church. I was kind of a dun. And at the same time, feeling like, well, this isn't the solution either. And uh, I read uh, Rick's book, uh, The Externally Focused Church, and I said, if this is even you know halfway accurate, this is a church I can be a part of, a church that really is trying to focus on uh, caring about the community it lives in and trying to have the uh, answer the question, if our church disappeared, would the community care, and have the answer be yes. There were two personal failures that happened that got Rick and I to really focus in on this. We were challenged uh, to write down the names of our neighbors, who the eight closest neighbors next to us, and Rick and I both got Fs. And we checked out the rest of our staff, and they did as bad as we did. And we said, okay, we don't even know our neighbors' names, and supposedly we love them. And, you know, and then we thought, okay, do we even know their hopes, their history, their, you know, hurts? So it was that personal failure that we said, we're just giving lip service to loving our neighbors. The other thing was a little bit more of a corporate failure. But one day, we got a phone call from the city, and they asked us uh, to help out with a home, 
that the grass was out of control, uh, feet tall, and they said that they'd sent a few letters to that household, uh, weren't getting responses, and they just said, would you take care of it? So I said, sure. So we, I went, knocked on the uh, door, a young woman opened the door, and uh, she started crying, and she was embarrassed, and she said she had stage four cancer, and her yard, you know, was out of control because of her illness, and and I said, ah, oh, you know, don't worry about this. We'll take care of it. So I called a dozen of the our usual suspects, you know, at the church who volunteer for everything. They brought their lawn mowers and all that, took care of it, and uh, and then came a couple of weeks later, did some more work, and then a couple of months later, I called just to check in on her. When I after I hung up the phone, I was. Um, essentially patting myself on the back that the, that the city you know that we were the kind of church that the city could call knew they could count on us and that we would deliver and when I was patting myself on the back on that the Holy Spirit convicted me and said stop doing that and the reason the city had to call you uh, is because her neighbors had failed at loving her and, and I thought, okay, if I could do this again, what should I have done? And I realized I shouldn't have called the usual suspects. I should have checked her neighbors and see if the, they could step up to help, help her. And so it re- I was convicted that we had become extremely good in a sense of crossing the tracks and serving, but we hadn't yet uh, become strong at just crossing our own streets and living there and loving our neighbors. And so that's what drove us, and I'm a bit of a practitioner, so I'm looking at what are the real ways we can actually meet needs of people around us, what if we love God and love our neighbor, our actual real neighbor. We started with the staff and, and challenged them to get to know their neighbors, to learn their names, to learn their histories, you know, where they work, and learn, uh, you know, where they lived and grew up, and learn their their hopes, what they dreamed about for their future, and learn, you know, even their hurts of what experienced in their lives. Because when you just look at your neighborhood, a lot of people that are listening right now, they're probably thinking, you know, my neighbors are great. But if you get to know them a little bit, they're all carrying uh, losses and and hurts and also carrying hopes of a a better life. And so it was that challenge among our staff and then our elders on one hand, it was highly, you know, highly well received. On the other hand, people couldn't wait for it to be over because it was so challenging. Brian helped us uh, organize around four practices that started as a thing he was doing with his girls. And, and I'm not much for stuff that rhymes, but this actually works. Yeah, it's a little bit cheesy, but when uh, my girls were much younger, they were I think four and six. I just kind of had some self-reflection and thinking, you know, I'm okay, Dad, but I'm not nearly as good as I thought I would be or hoped I would be. So I just need to do something consistently that helps me get better. And so I came up with three things, and then my daughter, youngest, added a fourth. And they rhyme, and it's, and it's cheesy, but I can remember it. And the first thing was just to stay. I needed to stay connected to my girls so whether somebody's married or divorced they still need to stay connected to their kids and know about their world and know what's going on in their school uh, the second one was to uh, pray for my girls and because I was connected I would know how to pray well for them 
the third thing that I had was say, that I would say I loved them uh, every day and that I'd also speak into their lives, our values. And my youngest at four said, Daddy, my favorite of you is when you're silly. And I realized I'd uh, skipped one. It was play and how important play is. Well, then uh, when we were thinking about like, this can't just be theoretical neighboring, you know, what are some four practices? It was like, well, that, that would apply not just to kids. That applies to anyone. And so it's like, let's stay connected to our neighbors. And again, we were like, do we even know their names? Uh, do we know their hopes and hurts? Uh, and then when it comes to praying for them, um, I mean, I don't have a scientific study, but I bet I'd be surprised that more than 1% of Christians literally pray for a neighbor. And so it was like, that could be a game changer all by itself. God loves your neighbor. God knows your neighbor. He knows our names, hopes, and histories. Uh, why don't you ask God for help on uh, by praying for your neighbors? Uh, then playing with your neighbor, you know, as adults, our main thing we play, uh, the way we play is around uh, hospitality and eating together. So pull out the barbecue, grill, invite your uh, neighbors over. And then lastly, say, uh, we do hope that there will come a time when they say, you know, there is something different about you uh, and you share your life and that you're going to have a natural opportunity uh, to point them to Jesus. So these are the four practices that we're trying to integrate into our everyday lives. So what we've found, though, is that people who are doing this have discovered one better, you know, just greater relationships in their neighborhood. Um, you know, one of the questions we're, we're helping people get to is when we asked if the, if the church disappeared, would anyone care? Now the question is, if you disappeared from your neighborhood, would it really matter? And the stories we get back are phenomenal about relationships that get created and the opportunities that happen. But the, they end up actually being kind of just one, one story, a simple story. What it has done is that I think it's put the mission of the church back in the hands of the church. We do live in a day today when we cocoon more. We got privacy fences and uh, garage doors that are up and down. And when we do head outside to jog, we've got uh, both ears filled with our, our uh, uh, running music and all those things that happen. Um, you know, researchers call it super cocooning, where we're actually becoming more insular. Um, there was a day when neighboring was a natural thing. It happened. happened in nearly every society. Uh, happened in our culture for a long time and today there's there isn't those uh, connections so you have to be more intentional about that I can love people generally but specifically is a lot harder so to know God loves me generally is a great thing but to actually embrace it personally uh, I, I think that's been what Jesus calling has allowed people to do and I think it's similar to this neighboring thing through other devotionals and stuff, it always seemed like I was hearing about God's love secondhand. And and this was like hearing it firsthand. It kind of re removed a veil uh, between uh, me and the words. And so it's one thing to hear that somebody said they loved you to someone else. And it's something else to hear someone actually tell you they love you. Jesus took from the Old Testament and said, here's the two great commandments. Love God with everything you have and everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And we said, you know, we can only be good at a few things in life. How about this church focuses on what Jesus said matters most?
You know what I love about that passage too? Jesus gets to the end of the, in Matthew 22 and he says, in all the law and all the prophets, hang on these two commands. So in other words, here's what he's saying. At this point in history, where I'm standing, at this place on the planet, everything God has set up to this point, every command he's given, every promise he's made, everything the prophets have ever said on his behalf, all of it hinges off these two things. To find out more about the Neighboring Church book and to get resources and tips on how to be a better neighbor, please visit NeighboringChurch.com. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we have a very special God and Country episode featuring Lee Greenwood, the legendary country singer and songwriter of God Bless the USA, and Charlie Daniels, whose new book about his life, entitled Never Look at the Empty Seats, comes out in October 2017. Lee Greenwood shares how his faith has been a constant for him throughout any storm. Faith gives strength. You have to know there's something stronger there that can protect you when you're uh, in harm's way or in crisis. That's the kind of faith that I always have, no matter where I perform, no matter what, what kind of disaster or crisis I may face. There's a story that you're either coming out of a storm, you're living one, or you're about to have one. And uh, if you live by the faith, you're not afraid uh, of that storm. Our featured passage for today comes from the March 11th entry of the Jesus Calling audiobook. Walk by faith, not by sight. As you take steps of faith, depending on me, I will show you how much I can do for you. If you live your life too safely, you will never know the thrill of seeing me work through you. When I gave you my spirit, I empowered you to live beyond your natural ability and strength. That's why it is so wrong to measure your energy level against the challenges ahead of you. The issue is not your strength, but mine, which is limitless. By walking close to me, you can accomplish my purposes in my strength. Hear more great stories about the impact Jesus Calling is having all over the world. Be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling podcast on iTunes. We value your reviews and comments so we can reach even more people with the message of Jesus Calling. And if you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.